When I crafted my platform, I gave no consideration to how various interest groups or constituencies would respond to any of it. That's not to say that I didn't, I don't have concern for the welfare or the, the impact on, say, teachers. I care very much about teachers. My mom's a teacher, all my parents are teachers. When I decided to run, I, I said I would continue to be Michael Schellenberger, um, and that would be somebody that was going to take a hard look at the evidence and develop a platform that I think is fair and right and good for the people of California. Welcome to Surely You're Joking. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Peter Hickerson. Today, I am up in the Bay Area. I actually flew up here to talk to a special guest. He's running for governor of California, something that I think is a really awesome thing to do. Um, he's a cool guy. I followed him uh, on Facebook before he made his big announcement. And now he's up here, and we're going to talk about why, and I think it will be pretty obvious uh, why I'm interested in it. Um, and interested in what he has to say. Uh, remember, please help the podcast keep going. Donate to my Patreon account, patreon.com slash SYJ. But now, uh, please welcome uh, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for agreeing to do this. Yeah, this is awesome. It's going to be fun. So, uh, you, why did you decide? I'm, I want to hear it straight from you. Why did you? De- I already know the answer, but why did yeah. you decide to uh, run for governor? Of California? Well, the answer keeps changing, so it's fine to. <laughs> <laughs> I had multiple motivations. I mean, I was I spent the last two years trying to save nuclear plants at risk of being closed down. Mm-hmm. And ding, ding, ding! If you guessed it, that's why I was interested. <laughs> and I was interested that before you decided to run for, for yeah. Uh, run for uh, governor. I almost said president, but right. I'll, I'll slow down on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've had, um, you know, I'm a strange environmentalist. I'm pro-nuclear. I changed my mind about it um, uh, right around Fukushima and 2011 and have written a lot. I'm a, had a think tank and then decided that all of our good ideas were not doing enough to save this most important technology we have for, protect, for protecting the environment. So Spent the last couple of years working with climate scientists, including James Hansen, to save nuclear plants around the world. Had some big successes in places like South Korea, Illinois, New York, Connecticut, France. Um, just reversed its decision to reduce nuclear. So it's some good success. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. They That's were going to go from 75 great. to 50%, and they yeah, just I'm they glad said we're not going to do that. I'm really glad. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, because, of course, that's nuts. Germany yeah. went the <clears> other way. And what's the first thing that happened? They... Uh, they suddenly had to cut all their, um, you know, their carbon goals. Yeah. They had to cut their um, energy independence goals from Russian imports. I mean, it was, it's it was so predictable at the time, and I was like practically screaming, yeah, the top of my lungs when they were doing it. Yeah, and it was. Uh, it's interesting you said that it was around the time of Fukushima because that's actually when I became very pro nuclear too. Even though as a nuclear physicist, right, I wasn't really. Uh, you know, I went. I went. I took a summer here at Berkeley, so uh-huh. I got. The, I got the you know the liberal education and everything. So. Yeah, I was. I, I thought I believe the normal things that people say about it that you know it's all going to turn into Chernobyls and everything. But it was definitely Fukushima that um, 
changed my mind. And what's funny is when you talk to people who, uh, they, they always think the other way around. They're mm-hmm. like, but, but Fukushima, how could, and that it's so, it's hard to explain that why that was uh, such a good turning around point. So why did that cause you to turn around? Oh, because it was very clear from the science that the radiation that had escaped would have basically no impact on human health and that the over-evacuation was a panicked overreaction. I mean, it took me a while to fully understand what happened, but basically uh, it now looks like the Japanese had underprepared not only for a nuclear meltdown, but also for the tsunami. Mm-hmm. And I think that the authorities felt guilty at having done too little, and then they overcompensated by doing too much in response to the nuclear mm-hmm. meltdown. That combined with a prior belief that radiation was a super dangerous thing in Japan. The Japanese had this very funny thing. They had this idea that that radiation is super dangerous, but that the government would protect everybody from it. And so once it became, once the government lost its legitimacy in terms of being able to protect the public that at that point the backlash against nuclear was very intense and Mm -hmm. in some ways there's a sort of a childlike response i think from the public which is just a little bit like daddy you said you were going to protect me from the dangerous (laughs) monster and you didn't Uh, um although to be fair to the japanese they at least named tsunamis like most people didn't even know what those were before so they clearly had thought about it and i remember i remember seeing some video of, of people going to comparing where the damage went and then i guess there's these ancient stones around japan mm. and there are these stones from like 500 years ago and a lot of times they're carved they said this is the you know the 1500s tsunami water level and they're so like japan had actually you know marked these and put this war- these warnings from yeah. a long time ago like this is a serious thing so take it <laughs> yeah take it seriously well and they're very you know it's a mixture of pride and insecurity in the sense that i think the the authorities in Japan, like here and in other countries, are just really bad at dealing with public concerns about nuclear and about radiation in particular. So they didn't try to deal with it mm-hmm. either before or after the accident. Instead, they just would continue in a sort of engineering style, insist that they would take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the overconfidence. So it was like a, almost like a social insecurity you know, that kind of nerd insecurity about your social abilities <laughs> combined with the arrogance of an engineer who thinks that he has been able, he has perfect foresight and perfect ability to protect people. So, um, uh, around that time, um, I took samples of rainwater and somebody, a colleague of mine also did it here. I didn't know that until yeah. later. And, um, part of the reason is because there was just this insane amount of panic that, swept over the US, particularly in Pacific states. And just this amazing deep-seated belief that the government here was lying about what contamination was reaching here. So uh, another colleague and I, we set up this this uh, map because the, the, uh, the EPA actually does do radiological monitoring of the country, of, mm-hmm. across the country, this facility, thing called RadNet. Um, it's super rad. Um, anyway, uh, they, but the, but this data wasn't presented in any kind of way that anyone could even read. I mean, it made no sense to, so what we did is we used Google maps, a plugin to Google maps that we wrote 
and we just connected the sensors to show it. And it, it kind of like went mini viral and, and all these people were showing it because basically it was showing like there are not waves of uh, radiation coming over the country. But what was funny is that like uh, we got contacted by um, certain um, newspapers and, and I'm, I don't know if I want to name them, <laughs> name names, but there were somewhere they were they wrote us. They were about to write a story and publish a story. And then like through the process, they said, wait a minute, this I'm, I must be reading this wrong. It says there's nothing wrong. That there's, <laughs> and then they drop the story. So there's right. a, <laughs> um, so there clearly is this like strong bias to try and sell the scary part and not, you know, not the other one. Yeah, to be fair, that's you know, it's not news if it's not harming anybody. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like more right. waves of radiation of harmless waves of radiation today. You know. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, that, that's a big problem. I mean, I think just what you were saying, I mean, you know, we do detect lots of radiation coming from Fukushima. It's just at levels that are too low to matter. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for people to get because I think people think that radiation is a super potent toxin and that even small amounts of it are dangerous. And some of that is because the science got done badly. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's a new book coming out by Richard Rhodes on on this issue or that has a few chapters on this, which is that, that it became in, in, um, it became enshrined in the, in science that, that no amount of radiation is safe for humans, mm -hmm. which is just ridiculous because we know that people live in high radiation places like Colorado, um, and have no, there's no evidence of any impact on their health. Yeah. Uh, well there's, there's even another, um, Another, there's even a more extreme version of this possibility, which is uh, it's not unreasonable to think that actually there is a healthy level of baseline radiation. And mm -hmm. when I tell people, like a lot of, I have a friend who's, she's a great doctor, but when I tell her that she's, she's just, she gets horrified. She's like, no, of course it has to all be bad. Mm -hmm. But a great example is, uh, you know, is sunlight. You right. need UV radiation right. to perform a basic function on your body. It sterilizes the surface, and it also generates vitamin D. And it's completely possible that that happens with other things. Like, your body is... We've been exposed to radiation for billions of years, probably more in the past, or peaks of it from celestial events that give off lots of radiation. Um, and so, we know there's a hormetic effect yeah. from radiation. Right. Right. Um, it's funny that she would think that because everything else in medical science is going in the opposite direction. Well, she, th I think that's where it comes from. She's worried because so many of her colleagues overprescribe uh, a radio, uh, you know, radiation diagnostics like cat oh. scans and stuff like that. <clears throat> but that's a separate issue because a cat scan is actually a lot of radiation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of radiation, but it's still. Like, that's just not anywhere. I mean, I think the thing that she's missing, though, is some sense that um, there's a hormetic response. So everything we know now, like we think, you know, we now like there's a lot of evidence to suggest there's actually cancers in us that are being killed by killer T cell, um, uh, killer T cells all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that immune system function is really important to staving off all sorts of things. So you then go to radiation, you say, oh, there's no, you have to imagine there's no immune system response to radiation. Well, why would that be? Why would radiation be the one injury to human cells that doesn't have 
a, a hormetic response. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make any sense, right? right. You'd have yeah. to have some reason why the body was like u- uniquely defenseless against radiation when it is def- when it offers a defense against so many other things: bacteria, viruses, cancer cells. Yeah, I mean it. It clearly makes people. I mean, it's the the sun the sun exposure thing is like I think very easy to visualize because it's like it's very easy to understand why you don't want to be out in the sun all the time with no sunscreen. It physically is painful. It burns. But at the same time, the response to that should not be, I'm going to be inside at all times. Right. And uh, I think one of the, f- the funniest things I, uh, is that it totally seems reasonable. I, I think it's the weirdest thing that people are scared of like some kinds of radiation and then expose themselves to others. Like uh, in the case of sunscreen, they, it isn't true anymore. But like my kids used to have to wear sunscreen in the morning in the middle of winter. It was like the rules. And and uh, we were just like, like, no, we don't need that because that's not helping them. And they're just they're not going to be in the sun that much and they don't burn that much. But um, but they it's weird that people would think it's so great to just put this like oily thing that's from dirt in the ground with weird metals on it. And that that's supposed to protect you from this other thing because it's radiation. Well, the interesting thing is that not it's not that everybody is equally afraid of radiation. Oh, absolutely. The Some sun people, one is a great example. Yeah. Most normal people like right. going to the beach. I have a friend who is terrified of the sun, you know, just right. like, and, and it's just a phobia, you know, it's just... Right. It, but it's a phobia that disproportionately affects people with a particular political worldview. In other words, who's most afraid of nuclear energy? It's political, you know, left people. It's it's progressives, it's liberals, it's environmentalists. Mm-hmm. It's not conservatives and right wingers. I've run into conservatives who are afraid of it too, though. They are. I <laughs> mean, they tend to be a, a different I, kind of conservative. I think, and I think they're scared in a different way. Like I've yeah. run into a lot of, uh, I, particularly now with the populist wave that we're seeing. There's a big chunk of people who are on board with the. Uh, government conspiring against you we're seeing like this bizarre yeah. alliance between right far and right and, uh, and far left like visualizing this government conspiracy i mean like alex right. jones is probably like right. completely typifies that kind yeah. of thing yeah so um so people that fear centralized political authority tend to be against nuclear yeah um because they that, don't trust what will happen if it you know if it goes off they think the government will lie about it right which is is what you know what people were when we were working on the radiation map, I mean, that was literally what people were telling us was like that we're lying or the data is being lied. You know, we're being right. fed lies. And that's why I did things like, well, look, I went out and measured the rainwater myself. This is not an easy experiment to do. So not everybody could do it. You have to have special equipment. But, right. you know, I could do it. And I'm like, look, there's there's literally no iodine left. Just like, you know, there was there's just enough we could see that it made it here and that right. we were looking at it. But it's so washed away by just the normal background of of what we see every day right and and people just that's the part that's upsetting is like yeah. well you just aren't aware of the fact that you're being bombarded right now right you know but like, you might go to those people that's really really the people that are let's say really phobic the 30 percent that are really anti-nuclear really radiophobic if you say um okay but like if the gut you think the government's covering up the damage caused by nuclear why are they not covering up the damage being caused by coal plants for example, so right, why why right. is the World Health Organization engaging in a conspiracy around nuclear, but openly saying that air pollution kills seven million people a year? And then they say, "Well, I think air pollution's bad too." Yeah, and it kind of goes, "Well, yeah, but you're you're by doing nuclear, you're not having to do coal and fossil fuels." 
ultimately they don't want to admit it, but they're choosing the fossil fuels over the nuclear. Um, yeah. And I used to work in the solar industry. Right. I, mean, I still do actually. I mean, yeah. Uh, but that was also constantly like, oh no, I'm really into fusion and, and solar power and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, fusion is not available at the moment. Right. Um, you know, that's, I, that will be great, I guess, although it still has nuclear radiation coming from it, but that's, we'll right. worry about that later. Um, but, uh, you know, I work in solar. I actually have an economic interest in solar being, you know, successful and I have zero economic interest for radio, you know, for nuclear power other than, you know, maybe it helps my research a little bit, but not really. I mean, the power plant issue is right. not related. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's like I, I, I spent like 10 years of my life trying to solve that problem. And it's not that it's not solvable. It's just that it's not even solar even being totally solved does not solve 100 percent of all the problems right. and introduces new ones and yeah. ones I care about. I, I don't think solar's problems are solvable. Uh, well, like usually when people say unsolvable, you mean like uh, like cost wise. So uh, what do you mean by unsolvable? I mean, I mean, I don't think it's I think it's not. I think the problems with solar energy as a source of electricity in developed economies and developing economies um, is unsolvable in the sense that it's not possible to make sunlight more energy dense and mm -hmm. it's also not possible to make sunlight reliable. So those two things are unsolvable to no fault of the panel. Right, right. <laughs> Panels can be as amazing as possible, but the sun and the, uh, the, the intermittency of the sun and the low energy density are unsolvable. Mm -hmm. And those are those are the two fundamental barriers to to more widespread use of solar. Yeah, and you know I I used to think that it's very easy to go to a map and say like here's a square, you know, that could power the entire world and that sort of thing in the desert. But the more I worked on this, the more I realized like, well, but actually doing that to a desert is not an environmentally <laughs> zero right. game thing. I mean, uh, you know, what are the... We're about I to publish a report <laughs> on the desert tortoises that yeah. are killed by, killed by the solar farms. Yeah, I, I've said this as a joke to people. Some people get mad, but I mean... I would rather see fallout hit a desert than it be turned into a solar panel. Of course. Every time we've seen a fallout contaminated area, nature's been just fine with it. Oh, I'm, yeah. not, you know, I'm not recommending we do this ever on purpose, but I'm saying when you put, when you take over land and run power lines through it and everything, that's pretty, you know, that actually affects the things that live there. Yeah. And you could tell that if you, you know, just even the aesthetics of it and the animals that live there. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there were little hints when I started working on solar early. Like I went to this, uh, go see con solar concentrator down in um, Australia. And they started, <laughs> they started hearing about the birds. And mm. they said, oh, yeah, occasionally a bird will, will fly in front of the focus. And, you know, there'll be some smoke coming off of that. And sure enough, there are places where the birds actually just, you know, get vaporized. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we have a really big one here in the Mojave called Ivanpah. Yep, yep. Yeah, and the they... company I work for got that contract oh, okay. first. But then we lost it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, had a, it's had a pretty negative impact on desert tortoises. It's had an, um, it continues to kill birds. Mm -hmm. There's no solution to it because the birds are attracted to it. Yeah. So that's exactly the kind of uh, solar I work on, these heliostat yeah. fields. So I have some patents yeah. in heliostat tracking and yeah. stuff. And, yeah, I mean, I... I tried hard on it, and it, but it, it can do the things it can do, but it, you know, it's limited. 
Right. And it you run up impact. against the law of physics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the environmental impacts are very serious. I mean, with, you know, with the white-nosed bat, which is our migratory bat species, is at risk of going extinct because of wind turbines. Like, people don't know this. Um, you know, the, the wind is a significant threat to bird species, actually. And people kind of go, well, look, house cats kill more birds, but house cats don't kill eagles. <laughs> eagles my eat. cat could kill an eagle no my, no <laughs> eagles will eat your house cat yeah, yeah I, saw, I saw a talon recently it was like yeah size of your face oh yeah yeah like you know, little kitties they eagles love kittens you uh -huh. know um so yeah i mean i think that's a big part of it so you kind of kind of ask yourself why is the most why is the technology that's best for the natural environment so opposed by people who say that they're out to protect the natural environment that became a very interesting question for us. Yeah. So what is it? Because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, a lot of different things. I mean, I think that's why that's why anti-nuclear, in some ways, is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, anti-technology movements that's ever existed. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. You know, there was an anti-fracking movement there for mm -hmm. like three years. It was very intense. Yeah, um, yeah. And it kind of went I remember the viral video. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. And it kind of just went away after yeah. the science became much more clear and after advocates of renewables realized how much they needed natural gas. Um, mm -hmm. GMOs, the backlash against GMOs has clearly peaked and has been dying out for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just pushing back on the science. The fear of glyphosate, which is Roundup. Yep. You know, the science yep. is now <laughs> definitive on that. It's not carcinogenic. And and that backlash goes away. So why is the? What is I'm not convinced that one's gone away yet. Oh yeah, but okay. yeah. <laughs> I'm super pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I read uh, one of the World Health House, uh, the who's one of the World Health Organization's studies on it because they did this thing where they they can kind of confuse people because one group said it was a carcinogen, and another group said it does not cause cancer. And a lot of people don't know the difference between those two things. Yeah. Because, of course, uh, lots of things are considered carcinogens, like the sun. You know, that's one of the things. But that's not the same thing as your risk factor to it. So I just decided, okay, look, I got to look up these papers. And being an academic, I can access these papers. Which, by the way, is a huge problem that the public can't read academic papers because they're always behind paywalls well that's why they're sci-hub yeah. <laughs> yeah oh sci -Hub, i don't know about that what oh yeah that? no sci-hub well, is a hack to so that ordinary people can read um academic papers i was like the, the WikiLeaks of uh, i'm not promoting it right <laughs> there's no collusion with I, I know i know that some people use it um but yeah given that we're in berkeley that's probably like in the syllabus it's like i'll just go to the, the oh, sci -Hub. Sci -Hub. yeah sci-hub yeah 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 um so yeah i mean i think that um Sorry, I got to tell yeah. you. So I looked up the paper, and it said that after uh, feeding one of the four mice that they were in the study, one of them got a tumor. And I translated the the weight to the weight of glyphosate to body weight ratio, yeah. and it was the equivalent of drinking an entire gallon of Roundup every day for four years. Right. And then that one mouse got it. Right. And I was right. like, okay, look, I'm I'm happy with the knowledge that if I, I'm just going to not drink an entire roundup. Right, right. Because <laughs> that's right. an expensive... Right. Well, there's a, it's also like I, I have some colleagues that just published a study saying that if we were to move to organic fertilizer, 100% organic fertilizer globally, it would require an, an increase in the amount of farmland the size of Australia. <laughs> and people are like, well, why would that be? It's like, well, because you have to produce the fertilizer. So either through legumes... Mm -hmm. or through manure, but it requires expanding the agricultural footprint. So mm -hmm. these two things, um, you know, nuclear 
synthetic, you know, um, in, industrial agriculture are clearly better on every environmental metric. Um, and they're opposed by people that say they're concerned about the environment. So, so let's talk that? about that. So yeah. in California, since you're running for governor, yeah. this is going to come up, um, especially since it sounds like you're trying to be a, a, a more, you know, not on the hard left and presumably not on the hard right. But one of the issues we saw um, in the last election and previous elections was, uh, you know, farmers of California having a disagreement about the way water was being used in in California. So uh, do you think that you, your, your message about this will resonate with those kinds of farmers? Like, Because uh, here's where it comes up. I think a lot of people fear a thing about California culture in general is just mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the, the government decides something based on what scientists say and then just tell them how to do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, the example might be with this organic thing. Like, no, we're banning all glyphosate. You have to do organic only mm. kind of thing right so uh, i am I, i'm not a farmer and i've never grown up in a farmer environment but i imagine that's not a message that uh farmers want to ever hear is that like, they're going to be ordered to do organic farming so how are you going to make sure that uh do you, do you think you, your message will appeal to to the farmers i haven't what, done I, I i um i am aware of of public opinion in california i read i've read i read and have read all of the most important studies of public opinion including how it's changed over time. But I, when I crafted my platform, I gave no consideration to how various interest groups or constituencies would respond to any of it. That's not to say that okay. I didn't, I don't have concern for the welfare or the, the impact on, say, teachers. Mm. I care very much about teachers. My mom's a teacher. All my parents are teachers. My plan, I think, is good for teachers, but I don't know that the teachers are going to like it. So you're um, not going to do this thing, which we see a lot now in politics. You're not going to go and tailor a message for a particular group. Absolutely and, uh, not. Because, you know, in my personal opinion, we saw that like crazy from both parties. This idea, you know, I think Americans have gotten really exhausted from this, that somebody will just say what the audience they're talking to wants to say. Right. Um, well, it's a two-step process. And, you craft, you're supposed to... The corruption is so severe that even friends of mine suggested that I behave in that way, which is fundamentally corrupt. Well, I almost assumed you had to and then, until you just right. mentioned that you're Everybody like, well, says you that. know what? I'm going to throw yeah. this out there. Like, I'm not going to just yeah. tell, I'm not going to, uh, you know, appease right. farmers as farmers because, right. yeah. Okay. The corruption persists in California and broadly because people are so cynical and they've actually forgotten what democracy is supposed to be. They, they forgot that it's supposed to be a competition for uh, who has a better plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, instead, they imagine that what it is is it's a kind of um, double corruption where first you go create your platform after asking the interest groups who will fund you mm -hmm. what you should do, and then you go and hire pollsters to and social scientists to help to you to resell sell it to that, the masses. Yeah, yeah. It's corrupt in both of those ways. Right. Um, so like I, in, the, in the farmer analogy, yeah. you'd be like, you know, you have your platform like, well, I've got a lot of support from the Farmers Association. Then you make a fear campaign about, you know, right. organic Whatever farming or something. It yeah. would probably be about water, but yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so, this is completely in the news now with uh, like Cambridge Analytica because, uh, now with social media, and this is a California invention, I'm both proud and embarrassed to say, um, we 
can use, we can tailor messages really, really well. So that model is getting harder and harder to walk away from. So do you think you're going to be able to, to do that? Like, uh, you're going to be able to get past that corruption bump? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, but it doesn't affect what I would do. In other words, I when I decided to run, I, I said I would continue to be Michael Schellenberger. Um, and that would be somebody that was going to take a hard look at the evidence and develop a platform that I think is fair and right and good for the people of California. Um, and and that's what I did. And the you know the idea, some of the ideas were new, but some of them you know there's energy in the environment. But you know my whole family is full of educators, and my 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 sister my stepsister is actually an education policy expert. My my sister is a health policy expert. I'm married to a, um, a health policy expert, um, you know, and then and there's a bunch of ideas that have been brewing. But I, I what I knew I wanted to do was to create a vision that was consistent with what I think is special about nuclear, which is that it is a way to lift everybody out of poverty and protect the natural environment. So I knew that I wanted my platform to be consistent with the, with the slogan for environmental progress, which is nature and prosperity for all. So the platform delivers, I think, on that promise. And I think the biggest discovery was just that, you know, I think the biggest problem in the state, and it's the biggest, I think it's the biggest problem in the country, and maybe the biggest problem in the world, is rising social inequality. Mm -hmm. The gap between uneducated, poor Californians and the wealthier, more educated, propertyed Californians is huge and growing. And we keep getting called out about it. You know, it's terrible. Like, well, well, California was the least, you know, voted the least for the current administration. Yeah. I, you know, I have, I have lots of, uh, you know, comedy fans that I talk to all over the country. And it's very clear that that hypocrisy is upsetting to the rest of the country. That, yeah. And it's and it's very obvious. You know, I took the BART on the way over here and I saw the tent cities that we have in L.A. And I know it's not an easy, you know, an easy solution, but um, it it's also it's slightly you know it's embarrassing to, to try to defend that part of california right. because i certainly like living here you know i've been unemployed for a year and i'm doing fine because my wife works right and i wouldn't want to be unemployed anywhere else but uh in fact i wouldn't want to be homeless anywhere else but <laughs> california hawaii but i would be homeless in hawaii right yeah <laughs> and i know that a lot of our homelessness is caused by the fact that a lot of people come here right. to california where it's you know, you can, you know, freeze to death, but right. still it's, uh, you know, it's a real, it's a real mark of shame on California that we can have the richest people in the world, you know, right next door to the people with absolutely nothing. And that we have all these great ideas that we tell people about, and we have all this technology, but we're not able to solve that. Um, we are able to solve it. We, we, uh, but, but we don't want to, um, or at least a bunch of people don't want to, and it only but, can maintain itself with, by getting everybody to believe what is essentially a big lie. The big lie is that California is a progressive place. It's not. I mean, we have completely regressive taxation policies and we have regulatory policies that destroy the, the best way to lift people out of poverty and into the middle class, which is manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So we've been... Um, and we've basically kicked manufacturing out. We I have. Mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, we are good at creating intellectual property, and that is our strength, but it Scaling is really the hard R &D, to build things. About it. <laughs> yeah. No, we, 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 we create all this great R&D, and then we send, and then they start up their companies. They move to Oregon, Texas, Utah, some mm -hmm. anywhere um, with you know low electricity prices, 
and just l less of the red tape and bureaucracy, which was layered on manufacturing because people in the 60s and 70s hated it. Mm -hmm. Democrats, they thought that manufacturing was bad. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's We're in a new realm now where you can order the same thing from... from you can order a knockoff from China on Amazon, and you can blissfully th feel that... You know, oh, they're doing it better. But, you know, I, I was involved with getting products manufactured in China. And usually it's just because they're doing it in a way that is dirtier and less safe than we would allow here. So it's a weird standard where we've created a whole system on the West Coast here to get people to get these products manufactured somewhere else. And the end consumer doesn't actually know why one is cheaper than the other. And a lot of times it's for very unpleasant reasons like that it's from a, you know, a subsidized coal plant in China or it's like... Uh, There's some think, of that. I mean, the thing there is... Was a, yeah. There was a wake-up call that we had once, which is, I probably shouldn't even say this. I think it probably violates my NDA, but don't worry about that. Uh, we had a, a quote from a Chinese manufacturer who works for... is also the same manufacturer for a very large company in the U.S. And we were very happy to work with them. They sent us a, a final bill of materials for the assembled part where the steel in it costs is that their product price costs less than the raw price of steel that it was made out of and that was a huge wake-up call because that shows this is not a you know there's something dishonest being done here and we and you know cheap products are an easy way to get around that yeah and i mean um, i think that it's also like not all manufacturing is the same i mean i don't yeah. know that we don't want to make i don't think we want to be making tennis shoes and t-shirts anymore um sure but we make gorilla glass which is the glass that iphones used to prevent the covers from being scratched. Um, we invent a lot of high-tech components. We still make cars. We still make um, jet planes. And I think the atomic... And now rockets. And rockets, rockets, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's and, pretty fun. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, you're, it's a it should be a race to the top. You know, I mean, I am an economic nationalist in the sense that I think that every country should behave both competitively and cooperatively. But in the realm of economics, we should treat China as a competitor. That's mm -hmm. what it is. This idea that we're all going to sort of like be, you know, like cooperative on that. Mm -hmm. We should have an intensely competitive economic posture. But that means that you don't fight for the low wage, low skill, low tech manufacturing. You fight mm -hmm. for the high wage, high tech manufacturing. Right. I'm, I'm OK with being competitive with uh, with China. Sure. But um, there's a little bit of mental dishonesty when you want to buy a thing made of something that required a lot of energy to build, but then at the same time, so you're willing to bring that in and import it and pay for the, the you know, let's say it's, if, if it's coal, for example, but then at the same time, you want your own local government to deliberately not build coal plants so that they can't cost effectively buy that or they can't build a nuclear plant. Um, that That's a thing that a lot of people seem to be happy with, but I think it's mostly just out of ignorance. They just don't realize, like, look, the reason they did that is because they don't have the rules on the energy production. But you know what? When you inhale that carbon dioxide, you know, 100 years from now, it's you're not going to have a little postage stamp that said it came from California versus it came from right. China. I mean, it's not going to matter in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And to some extent, I think, I mean, I think to some extent, poorer countries are earlier in their stage of energy development and they might you know be using coal because they can't get natural gas yet or can't afford it but as we get richer we move towards cleaner sources of energy um but yeah i mean i think obviously it's a big problem 
So uh, recently, we Trump put uh, announced tariffs on aluminum steel, and the first thing that jumped in my head is that um, I, I know that a lot of aluminum manufacturing is done in Iceland, and the reason I learned this is because of because Bitcoin was really popular, and so people were asking me, uh, "Hey, where is the best place to run Bitcoin?" And I I predicted it would be Iceland, and sure enough, nowadays a lot of people go to Iceland to buy Bitcoin, but they do a lot of aluminum manufacturing. And the reason is because they have free energy. So, you know, how do you feel? How do you feel like there's like a nuclear energy is a response to the tariff model? Like it's a a better way of doing it, or would they work together? Or oh, you, you mean then then you mean then Trump steel tariffs? Yeah. Well, I think aluminum is a little bit more, but steel also is very electricity. Oh intensive. yeah. All yeah. all all metal. I mean, all all production is um, certainly all metal and steel production is very energy intensive and yeah you can use nuclear for it it doesn't have to be hydro or coal or gas um so yeah i mean i think that's why ultimately you want to have cheap energy in the whole system because it it's the it's the master resource for everything um and yeah that's why like nuclear is such a great economic you know driver because it's such a cheap source of reliable electricity um the problem is when we get too fancy with it overregulate it you know, um, subsidize all of its comp- all of its competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know water is a big issue. Um, LA uses a lot of water. We get a lot of we get a lot of shade from Northern California because we import a lot of water. But I also yeah. I found out that uh, recently, a lot of our energy goes into pumping water uh, to do this for you know places like LA and the desert. And the, I, so, like I said, I grew up in the desert and it's now been completely converted into, you know, suburban area, like about a hundred miles east of where I grew up now is expanded. Right. So it was really interesting because I get to watch it transition over time, you know, kind of, kind of exciting, but also kind of sad, but I mean, there's no changing it because right. people keep coming here. So, uh, one way or the other, um, so do you do you think you have a way to to uh, to sell that idea also that to, to well you're not selling ideas because you already said that <laughs> no also I mean I'll, I'll explain them uh, you mean on the it's water funny, it's like, I'm so hardwired to think that's how politics works I yeah. can't even say it any other yeah, way yeah. I'm just like <laughs> you mean do I think you have a solution for the water or the housing issue or both well both yeah we've stopped, I've. I mean, the biggest issue, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest issue in the state is housing. Uh-huh. If I just, I mean, and I, and part of the reason I'm running is to save the state's nuclear plants, which mm-hmm. are um, Diablo Canyon, right? Is Diablo Canyon and restart San Onofre. You know, Diablo yeah. Canyon has two reactors. It was supposed to have five, and one of them was going to be dedicated to desalinating water. Uh-huh. Um, so we know how to solve that's the water the, problem. That's I mean, the only reason I brought up. Yeah, yeah because you just San Diego and LA yeah. both want to do desalination. It's like, well, there's a sure. <laughs> there's a power plant right there. There's desalination. There's also water recycling, wastewater recycling. You know, mm-hmm. um, people have to get used to the idea, but appear, but around the world they have, and there is a new wastewater recycling plant in San Diego. Great surfing, by the way. In, yeah, uh, in San Onofre, really great surfing. Yeah, spot. yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the housing issue is the biggest issue. And so just to, the, the context here is that in the 60s, conservationists and environmentalists deliberately set out to make land and energy scarce in an effort to keep people out. 
they just didn't want this beautiful Eden to be trammeled by all these people. Uh-huh. Which, uh, I, that kind of, I kind of understand that. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, no well, we're all wants, here because it's so beautiful. Right? Yeah, when, when you have a nice, you own a tiny plot of land and you're surrounded by forest, yeah, nobody wants to see everybody move in and right. crowd it. I mean, Now, like, here's the problem, is that when you actually look at what got conserved, a lot of what was conserved were, were working ranches and farms, so basically what we, you know, what we, what happened here, just to simplify it, is that we basically said to farmers and ranchers, if you don't convert your land to housing subdivision, then we'll just keep your taxes incredibly low. And so what we, so we, so, but in the name of protecting the natural environment, we've actually ended up protecting two forms of land use that are incredibly environmentally destructive, ranches and farms are not places for biodiversity. And they're not these little quaint, like, you know, hippie farms or something. I mean, these are like, you know, ranch lands are, are losing their biodiversity in California as the cows eat the oak saplings. And so, um, and by contrast, where I live in the Berkeley Hills, which is up the road about 10 minutes, my two colleagues, my two work colleagues dropped me off one night and on the drive back home, a mountain lion crossed in front of them. We have coyotes, mountain lions mm-hmm. in the suburbs of California. They're also in in Los Angeles. Yeah, um, the area I live, we have. We know, even have bears. Yeah, yeah a couple strange. times a year, we lose a hiker or a, yeah. or a bicyclist to a mountain lion. But, but, but I live right next to the hills, right on purpose. That's right, right. That's where I wanted. to Yeah, live. the the mountain lions aren't in downtown LA. One You're time, right. the mountain lion made it to downtown Berkeley, and they had to they had to destroy it. Sadly, but we 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 uh, we can have mountain lions. In suburban areas and suburban open space, you can't have mountain lions on cattle ranches. Right. The cattle ranchers don't allow mountain <laughs> lions. Um, so I think this idea that all of the farms and ranch lands are the natural environment that should be protected is wrong. Just on, on, on its face, a housing subdivision would have greater biodiversity. And that doesn't count the biodiversity from things that we think are pretty banal, like deer and raccoon and skunks and butterflies and birds. I mean, I have... In our in our play, we have beautiful red-tailed hawks. We have mm-hmm. we have um, you know kestrels and um, you know incredible different kinds of raptors. So you know the suburbs are actually much more biodiverse than people appreciate them for being. And ranches and farms are much more environmentally destructive than people imagine. So I think that in order to solve the housing crisis, you have to allow more suburbanization as well as more density in the cities. If you don't have more suburbanization then the people in the cities end up um, blocking development um, and driving up the cost of housing. And that's basically what's happened. And that's why we have the highest rate of poverty, the highest rate of inequality. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on education. Yeah. I don't know that much. I'm from academia, so I only know yeah. one form of education. And right. I, I know enough about it to know that it's not for everybody. Yeah. I'm not even sure it's for me. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I was thinking mostly of K-12. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a huge problem. Our schools are, California schools are, are, are underperforming the national average. And they have for a long time. However, the, the national performance of schools has improved in recent years and ours hasn't. So we've actually declined to being 46th in the nation in terms of student performance, um, 44th in terms of school funding. So, you know, here's the state that has some of the world's greatest universities, Stanford, Caltech, Berkeley, UCLA, not to mention a very good state university system and community college that everybody can go to. But our K through 12 is a disaster. And if you really, when we really took a look at it, and you really get to the roots of it, it's, it's rooted in our failure to modernize our schools 
for the 21st century. You know, it sounds a little cliche to say, but it's true. Um, the schools are structured around a farm calendar, and the method of instruction is a factory-based model where the kids are going to have information inputted into them by their teacher. So the good news is we're in the midst of this amazing digital revolution. The mm. best lecturers on any subject are literally five seconds away uh, on search. Mm -hmm. So teachers, um, some of them are fabulous lecturers, um, not all, and, and most of whom actually like the satisfaction of more one-on-one -on -one tutoring, but haven't had the, we haven't had the resources to provide that. We now have a series of experiments showing the effectiveness of what's called flipping the classroom, which is where the teacher, where the lectures are provided digitally online. The teachers can then roam the classroom and act as tutors to give one-on-one -on -one instruction to students. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also then to develop an educational program that's personalized to each child. Um, you know, and it's also personalized to teachers. If you're just a really good math tutor, why should we make you teach history? Like, it doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense, right? You're just going to, like, you love tutoring fourth graders on math. That's great. That's all you have to do. That's mm -hmm. it. You know, um, why are we asking teachers to become these kind of Renaissance intellectuals who have to, they can't do it. So they have to teach to the test. They have to teach that road memorization style from the books. Some of that's important to have, but we need to open up the day a bit. So one of the things we're proposing is basically a change to both the school day. It should work for parents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's insane. Eight to two is like the school day for mm -hmm. most people. How do you feel, feel about daylight savings time? Like what Florida just passed? Oh, do they get rid of it? Well, they didn't get rid of it because they, yeah. they can't. I don't know if they can't or the way the law was written, they yeah. can't. But basically, they passed one of these, we'll do it if everybody does it. Kind right. Of things. Right. So how do you feel about that? Yeah. I think I'm I think I'm uh I'm I'm ignorant and therefore agnostic. I don't I haven't seen the evidence either way. Mm -hmm. I know that for schools Well just um, did, when you grow it up, didn't yeah. it, did it bother you <laughs> just have it change on you one time? The, you mentioned yeah. the farming you know schedule. Yeah. Like I definitely know it really sucked to have to go to school in the morning. In yeah. the dark. In the yeah. dark, yeah. Yeah. No, I meant in the morning. That's no. a, exactly. I, I meant yeah, going to school. Dark, actually, right. I meant going to school. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the one of the obstacles to doing um, to changing the the school schedule was around you know when it gets sunny. Now, I think the day should start at nine and should end at five because that mm -hmm. matches the parents' day. I'm unemployed, so as a parent, my day starts at eleven. Right. No, that's not true. I actually have to drive them. I have to do a lot of kid stuff now right. that I'm right. That's the burden on parents is too high. Like a stay-at-home husband. Right, right. <laughs> House husband? I don't know what it's right, called. Right, right. Mr. Mom, I'm <laughs> right. pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the burden on parents is too high. The burden on the teachers is too high. Um, and the, the burden on the students is uneven. And mm -hmm. so I think we fixed that with a 9-to-5 school day, 11-month school year. I mean, one of the things we just, the overwhelming research shows that kids need more instructional time to do to improve their performance mm -hmm. yes the quality of that instructional time matters but there is also just time on task mm -hmm. and, and so, after school care is like a big deal because if you want to do deal. after school school that's expensive and hard to convince a kid to do it when there's an alternative and why is it the parents uh, responsibility i mean you kind of go really the kids you have to put this mash of programs together and you have after school it's, then they should be at school you yeah, know, and, yeah. and within the school, mm -hmm. nine to five school day gives you time for arts, 
physical education, um, just walking and moving more. I mean, I'm a writer, and so I don't know how anybody ever writes anything without walking. All mm-hmm. of my writing occurs with that meditative rhythm of walking. We know that we've got an obesity and overweight crisis with kids now. I, I personally have that crisis. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but not the kids, hopefully. <laughs> no, no, my kids are fine. But uh, no, but my, my old job when I was at Cal, Stella Caltech as a postdoc, I lived on the second story, uh, second floor. And also the, um, the, the, the campus is sloped. And so I got like, uh, I, you know, I had like uh, your iPhone can track how fi- hard, how many flights of stairs you go. Yeah. And I was going up like eight flights of stairs a day, and then like as soon as I, I have a nice little off, I love my office at home. It's it's great, but like I don't have to. All I have to do is walk over to the fridge and right, <laughs> right, and and that's just not the same. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so so. I think that we can address more problems with a longer school day. We can meet more needs, including mm-hmm. physical needs, social and emotional intelligence. We know is really important. You know, um, as machines, as as we replace human activities increasingly with machines and AI, other skills, including the so-called soft skills, become more valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, teamwork, uh, leadership. You know, um, so you know, creativity. So, so like the things that are harder to do standardized tests on become actually more important. A lot of the stuff that we're testing kids in standardized tests for, you have machines that will do anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But kids need to learn how to think critically. They need to learn how to reason abstractly. So a school day that opens up, opens up more possibilities for that. And I think, um, you know, when you look at not just California underperforming America, but the United States is underperforming most other developed economies and a significant number of of just new developed economies. I mean, South Korea is just kicking our butt on a whole bunch of educational metrics and they just got rich like 10 years ago, right? Or like 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, so I think we're, it's time for some significant reforms of education. I think that the, the teachers should be paid more um, mm-hmm. and they need to give up tenure because there's no purpose for teachers to have tenure and um, fine to have a little bit of seniority, but teachers, they should, they're professionals. They should I already be, know that's gonna run you into trouble. My, my yeah. mom was a teacher, so she. Yeah. I know that they the teachers unions have they yeah. just they hold a strong they pick, line on it. Yes, they they hold the opinions on it, and they also yep. are very vocal about who they support. The older them. teachers are more in this vein. The mm-hmm. younger teachers are much more open to these kinds of reforms. I mean, you mm-hmm. have to remember that we're having a very hard time. Um, attracting and retaining high quality teachers. Mm-hmm. The pay is too low. The hours are too messed up. They don't have, they're, they're held accountable for things that they can't control. And mm-hmm. so the whole system needs to reform itself. But that means that teachers need to understand that, that the schools are not for them. The schools are fundamentally for the students. Mm-hmm. And, and there's three groups, arguably four if you count principals, teachers, parents, and students. Um, they all have to be happy. And right now, none of them are. And so I think that what I, what I would say to the younger teachers in those teachers unions is that, look, we're going to have a better solution for you um, year round. It's a professional calling. You're compensated better for it. You don't need to take a second job in the summer. And when you go to work in the morning and you come home at night, your day is done. This mm-hmm. whole thing where teachers have to have a second shift after dinner to grade papers and to do court and to prepare coursework like my mom did is very disruptive of the families. Mm-hmm. of teachers do, are you gonna uh, expand out to are you gonna 
to travel to LA and and talk to people in LA a lot? When's, what's your timeline LA, for that? Um, yeah, I mean, we... Because um, I got to say, this is, I don't yeah. mean this in a bad way, but when I read your platform, it feels very Berkeley to me. <laughs> so uh-huh. There is a NorCal thing. That's funny. Just for like, just this, just not... Not on the positions, but what you're discussing as the most important things. Yeah. They seem to be very uniquely Bay Area things. Like I know, for example, I know housing is a bigger issue in the Bay Area than it is in L.A. It is. Just because of the history and I, I don't. You Although it's know a more very big I deal do. in L.A. too. It is a big deal, yeah. but it's it's and the a homelessness crisis in L.A. is a consequence of the housing crisis. Yeah, and it it is really. Yeah, up. I mean, there's a mental health and substance abuse problem with the home with. With, with much of the homeless population, mm-hmm. our society has basically decided to deal with it the way we have, which, mm-hmm. is, to, which is to basically allow people to be on the street. Yeah. Um, and I think it's completely dysfunctional and messed up, but um, um, the new, the increased numbers of homelessness is, is, is clearly from the housing crisis itself. Yeah, um, although there's, a, there's some evidence that a lot of states literally ship homeless from their cities to LA and yeah you know yeah yeah though nobody would, and we don't kick them out so well yeah <laughs> and also like those are people that are willing to have their bus fare to LA paid for so it's not exactly <laughs> coercive but yeah. um yeah I mean um, and, and like I said uh, I mean in all seriousness if I were homeless I would prefer to be at a place like LA I actually learned this this effect this this is the street lamp effect um uh, I learned it when I went to Canada because I went to Victoria, which is the south uh, southeasternmost, sorry, southwesternmost tip of Canada. And normally we don't think of Canada as a place with homeless, but there's a lot of homeless in Victoria. And mm-hmm. when we were talking to Canadians, they're like, "Oh, that's because this is the only place you don't freeze to death in Canada." Right. right. <laughs> so yeah. A yeah, lot of yeah. it is just like, yeah, people. I mean, that's common. You know, they like uh, if they're burning out from society, they just get on a bus and right. they come to Victoria, and that's right. And right. nobody stops them, and yeah, and they yeah. don't die from freezing. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest issues in LA. I mean, what they say, what people say to pollsters is the biggest concerns are immigration, jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and housing. I mean, really, if you look at the three in California, those are the big three. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, in terms of the, I, we talked a little about the jobs. Um, immigration is, is, is a very important question. Um, I think it's been really, I think it's really tragic what's mm-hmm. been going on. You, you, I remember you, you got some controversy. You agreed with something Trump said about immigration. I did. It's funny. I, I didn't know if I got, I, I thought it would generate more controversy, but I wrote a piece. Well, I like that you did it. I like yeah. that it was like, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of, um, you're running as a Democrat. Yes. Right? I, I noticed that a lot of Democrats who are winning, they've given up on this this kind of thing that everyone's sick of, just attacking Trump or even worse, attacking Trump supporters. And they're just like, look, I'm going to, these are the, you know, things I can agree with on him and let's fight a battle for what's right, not what's, oh, what's happened already. You know, I mean, like, most of my, so, most of my, my, most of the gubernatorial candidates, they don't talk about solutions to immigration. All they talk about is standing up to Trump on the sanctuary cities issue, which yeah. is part of the tragedy. I mean, the Americans basically agree, majorities agree on two big issues. The first is, we have to have better control of the borders, you know, otherwise why have borders? Um, and most people are not, don't support open borders. You know, we, so we have, we need better control of the borders. Everybody supports that. And, and, and most people, not everybody, I'm exaggerating, but most people <laughs> support that. And then most people support 
giving the people who came here illegally and are here undocumented a chance to earn citizenship. But they want people to earn it. They don't think you should just get it. Um, and there's some people that, that, that think, well, you came here illegally, you should just be deported. But that tends to be a minority. So you have this broad agreement. We came close to passing legislation under Obama. We came close to passing legislation under Trump. And the extremes on both sides were responsible for not letting that happen. So what I point out in my piece is that it's now getting to the point of being dangerous because when, when, when we do things like the mayor of Oakland did, which is to notify everybody that um, an immigration raid is about to occur, um, most of those people targeting those raids are, are, are convicted criminals, um, not just you know people that came here undocumented, people that are wanted for other crimes. So you're you're putting at risk the public safety. So he's like you, literally warning potential criminals that criminals that, usually that yeah. convicted criminals yeah. actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you know, and I and and I think the Trump administration deserves some blame for for rounding up people that don't seem to have a criminal. Um, but Obama did the same. Um, Trump's done. I think Trump. Well, let's also face yeah. it. I mean, it's like a lot of it is that our politics is 140 characters long now. So right. it's very easy to say. You know, like no open borders on one side, and like right. accusing the other of wanting open borders, and then the other one, like, right. you know, like uh, we love immigrants. Or, you know, there's we we simplify every these little sound bites, and of course nowadays we have computers and robots and trolls right. amplifying them, and there are a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of politicians are very comfortable. They like that. like repeating it because that's right. a thing they can get somebody to pay attention to. That's exactly right. And and our lives are like our, the the data we listen to is now increasingly getting metered by all sorts of you know how we get it. The and it's making are, everybody unhappy. I mean, I um, I talked to a pollster I know, and he said I've never in my life, and he's been doing this for like forty years. He's like I've never in my life seen unemployment so low and unhappiness so high. Usually yeah. happiness and employment are very strongly correlated. Mm-hmm. I think social media is making us unhappy in a really important, like in a bunch of different ways. I also think that the way that we're raising our kids, this idea that there are these fragile little creatures that have to be given trigger warnings and have to be protected lest they are exposed to, 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 you know, um, scary information you know i mean they're exposed to different views i mean i I talked to a bunch of my young i talked to some this is a couple years ago but i talked to my young staff and some of the younger you know research interns that are here and there's a big controversy on campus about keeping these conservatives away from the berkeley campus Mm -hmm. yeah we've we've seen that yeah you've seen it here and i kind of go i go well you know the i was like i was like you know we were talking about i was like well you know the first amendment you know it protects free speech and we had this thing called the free speech movement like yeah three blocks down the street yeah. three blocks down the street <laughs> and 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 the, re- the response i found disconcerting the response was you're lowering your voice is that you're afraid other people are going to hear you because I, I didn't give anybody a trigger warning um <laughs> it's not this current it was mostly this prior staff but they said well we just have to balance that against um people's feelings being hurt and I was like, no, actually, the First <laughs> Amendment has no provision to protect people's feelings. Um, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, okay? So you can't use speech to jeopardize people's lives. Mm-hmm. But you absolutely, there's no, there's no like legal question that we do, that we permit offensive free yeah. speech. And, and just to be clear, I mean, 
it wasn't like this is a new thing that people are running into. No. It was specifically about hurting people's feelings. Yeah. It was the First Amendment was because people wanted the right to be able to insult the people in power. Yeah. To have them change their mind. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That was the entire point yeah. of the Enlightenment. And if the king's feelings yeah. were hurt, you know. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, it was in the sense that it was actually, to, it was, it was at the time, it was really to protect the freedom of, of, of political speech. But of course, they sure, protected but, broader religious and all these other yeah, things. But, and, but now the people, people that are in power, you know, it, yeah. it used to be the church right. and then it turned into right. the kings and, well, a, right. a mix always. Right. But, but I, mean, what, but what, I think you're thinking about hurting the king's feelings was a big part of it. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You sort of said, um, you know, and so now what are we doing? We're sort of tr we're, we're putting the protection. So we're treating kids. We're infantilizing kids. Um, we're, I mean, we're infantilizing like, you know, young adults. Yeah. You go, we go to college to be exposed to, to dangerous new ideas. Like that's mm. part of what an education is supposed to be. So that's a very big concern. And there's been some increasing pushback on it. But I think as I think the biggest so shock for me. That? How do we fix that in California? Well, I mean, I think there's, um, I think that's a cultural change that is going to take a long time and it's going to be, it's going to happen nationally. Um, mm -hmm. I think some of it does is different parent, um, is different parenting. You know, I, like a lot of kids in Generation X, um, I roamed. We had a lot yeah, of unsupervised too. time. Yeah, I would go biking to like yeah. three towns over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now, like, Without I'd, a I'd cell phone on you. If I, <laughs> right? If, yeah, if I left my kid biking in the backyard, I might be yeah. arrested. Or yeah, something. yeah. Yeah, so this over <laughs> Or at least get called out right. on Twitter or Facebook or something. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a move against some of that. There's a free range kids movement that's really good. You know, I I feel like it really peaked when my kids were baby. Maybe just because they were babies, it yeah. was stronger. But I it I feel like it started to go down. I and like you might be like, right. Like I mentioned the the sunscreen thing, for yeah. example. That was that was like a huge part of it. It was really this peak movement where it's like we're gonna put everybody, we're gonna wrap all the kids in Nerf and everything right. and. And uh, I, I noticed, like, the, the daycare and schools, they were starting to let up. They were, like, you know, they were, like, okay, yeah, actually, it is completely ridiculous to right. have every child. child every corner. Yeah, and, and have every child, like, slathered in sunscreen at 8 in the morning in December, you know. Right. So, like, that, so they stopped doing that. Right. And I feel like that's just also, uh, you know, yeah, the free-range uh, movement helped too. It's working people, a bit, yeah. Yeah, I haven't I, heard of anyone having been arrested for their kid going to the park right, recently. Right. That's been at least a couple of years. There was That's this nice. whole. Um, there was a trend of like um, how French French parenting, which is to you know kind of ignore your kids right, a bit, yeah. you know, like smoke cigarettes and drink wine. Uh, and yeah, I had, a, I had a French uh, Swiss French grandmother, so yeah. I was very aware of that yeah. parenting technique. I think the comedians have pushed back against it. Louis C.K. has done a very good job on mm -hmm. this stuff. Um, so the culture is becoming aware. It's huge of it. in it's huge in in uh, comedy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My my former coddling, co I mean, a lot of these guys. They my don't former co-host Owen yeah. Benjamin. I mean, he like he's he's that's his full battle now. That's all yeah. he does is him and Joe Rogan and other people. They just yeah, they Joe fight Rogan against it. Too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very it's very um, concerning. I think the I think we can overstate it too. Um, I think people have a cartoonish view of California with that respect outside right. of California. I feel right. like the legitimate issues of like being worried about free speech at universities and stuff like right. when I talk to some people uh, from outside or have been out of college for a long time, a lot of times they have a kind of cartoonish view, I think, yeah. of it, that it's, or, or that just because you're hearing the majority 
you know react a certain way it doesn't mean everyone who lives there you know i mean you live in berkeley so i mean but i'm still yeah. surprised by it i mean i, I was at a we were at a, are you so, scared though are you scared of it because i know some people are really really scared and oh, that's I'm not where i'm not sure no i'm not scared of it because like, I, mean, I, I don't also don't I, get cowed by that stuff yeah i mean you listen to some people like uh um like uh you know Ben Shapiro or something. They make it. Are you familiar with him? I mean, they make it. They make it sound like. Uh, well, just he's on Fox now too. Yeah. Thing and he does a pod. They make it sound like you know there's this, this impeding leftist takeover or something like uh, yeah. like year zero. And I I don't think the situation's quite like that in California, but. There's you certainly know, stuff to be ridiculed here. I mean, there's the, the whole thing is like, should we, you know, it's like you'd be in meetings and people go, should we go around the room, introduce ourselves and say which pronoun we would like to use? And you kind of go, if you want, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, because if you, you know, refer to me as a girl, I'll just correct you. I'm not going to like get like, I'm not going to have like a meltdown or something. Um, so I, I, I think it is correctable, but I think the problem, I think the social media is a, is a, there's the coddling and then there's the social media and the social media what it does is it makes people overly confident of their opinion on something mm -hmm. so of the bubble effect the bubble effect sure. yeah. yeah yeah and you know and, well, it's and, also, and now uh robots help with this too because right. we've we've all uh we've slammed past the turing test and we all failed because it's very obvious now uh computers have just gotten much better at telling us what we want to know be told you know, our timeline feeds with this right. bubble, you know, we, and it's you, not the problem. I mean, people blame the people look at the, people blame Facebook. Look, Facebook. I don't blame the problems. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, they're doing exactly, I mean, the right. robots that are doing this at Facebook are doing exactly what the fiduciary duty of the board members yeah. of Facebook are required to do. Right, right. I keep explaining that because I used to work in the tech sector also same because right. I, I worked for a guy who uh, um, the same time I did solar was also a tech incubator it did a lot of uh, dot coms in the 90s so you know I, I understand that startup process um, they uh, you know they, their job is to write software that generates more revenue that is that's a totally reasonable thing for them to do it's not a secret plot to take over the world right it's just a thing they do but we still have to be aware as a society that these things are happening. You know, right. it's it's no different than, you know, penicillin. It's like we all want penicillin, but you, if you use it wrong, then you get super bugs. You know, right, it's, it's, right. it's a thing we have to be aware of. And, and deal it's with very it. hard, though, because um, because right. we want positive emotions and the positive emotions and, and being confronted by different opinions mm. and disconfirmatory information is a negative experience for people they, yeah. they they we we can you can measure it like they don't it's not a positive experience to be to be confronted with information that you're wrong and so people want to get away from that experience yeah i i feel like it's being filtered because i used i maybe i'm part of the problem but i love arguing with people on the internet that i'm not a troll but i like doing it i feel like i'm literally being blocked from that even being an option now i mm -hmm. don't know if that's because people are just letting something go that they just, you know, they don't approve of or something? Mm -hmm. Or is it just, you know, the way the, the algorithms work? It might Maybe. be that, like, you're a little bit of an outlier and that most people, I think, don't want to argue with people. I think most people want to have, a, most people want to have, want to affirm and be affirmed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's the same thing with the parenting. The parents yeah. want to tell their kids how great they are, but sometimes kids need to be told where they need to improve. And that's not as pleasant of an experience as you know, as a parent, yeah. as it is telling your kid what a great job they did. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a role for mothering, and I don't just mean like for women. I just mean because because fathers can mother, 
but there's a role for mothering, which is to tell Mother, your kids. Mother, I think it's yeah, or term. smothering yeah. is what. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean like you know. I always loved how those two words are so. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a concept in Freud, which is the the devouring mother. It's the and it's in all the Jonathan. Um, mm-hmm. Franzen books of an over-involved mother, but like the mother is the one that, or the, not the mother, but the mothering is where you're offering unconditional love to your child. doesn't matter what you do. I'm always going to love you. It's really important for kids to have that if kids don't mm-hmm. have that, but they also need this fathering that goes, well, Hey, you, you got to buck up, right? Yeah. Well, you need the mothering to somebody like, Hey, look at him. I'm, I'm walking. And somebody has to mm-hmm. go, like somebody has to lie to you and, and, uh, you know, say, yeah, you're walking. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just had that conversation uh, with, uh, oh God, now I can't remember what it's over, but uh, my wife said something to my daughter and she's like, sweetie, I would never lie to you about that. And then I realized that it was one of these things that you almost always lie to your kids about. Cause it, so then I brought that up and she gave me a dirty look. Yeah. She was like, it'd be funnier if I could remember what the thing is, but I'll, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean like, you can have two mothers or two fathers, but those two those two things, the mothering and the fathering, both have to be present. And I think that the fathering part, we've gotten away from. The fathering part is the one that says, you know, it's like, get out of bed, you know, mm-hmm. get up, do your work, do your, it's discipline. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of parents who think that discipline is the same thing as punishment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a very dangerous confusion. So we've lost, if you start losing discipline, in your culture, it's really hard to get it back. And I feel like that's a big appeal of like populism and authoritarianism is that I think people are like looking for someone Definitely. To, to, you know, to be absolutely, you know, be that's, mean to somebody they can cheerlead right. who's being aggressive and being angry. Right. And I think that's, that's right. what rises to these kinds of people who are, that's right. who are you know, they're, they're saying things that they don't even believe are true with the intent of upsetting people like that's that. Right. It's just... You know, it's just feedback from that's right. when you're told everything is horrible, then nothing's horrible. And so you get somebody right. to to say the worst thing possible on purpose and they get cheers yeah. for it. And, yeah. And then they don't. And as a comedian, that's side. definitely that right. is a thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, you got to yeah. do it. It's like almost there's no option. At this right. Point. Right. Yeah. There's um the there's a famous linguist here at Berkeley named George Lakoff. He sort of became famous for a while because he had these ideas for helping Democrats. But he said that basically conservatives have a picture of the world and of the nation state that is of a strict father and that and that liberals had a conception of a of a nurturing um, uh, parent. And, and he sort of con- he's such a partisan Democrat. He was like, we have to emphasize the nurturing parent part. And I remember mm-hmm. at the time being like, well, I think you need both of those things. I think you need a nurturing, loving, you know, mothering parent. And then you need a strict disciplinary parent, even better if they're in both parents, because sometimes the disciplinary one resents being the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if not, and, and by the way, this now backed up by a very good study it came out. It was actually written up in the Times yesterday, where African American boys without fathers do much better in communities where there are more fathers than they do in communities where there's just not that many fathers around, and it's because they're getting fathering from other people's fathers. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a very important finding. It's not just, so I think the liberals kind of go, Democrats have traditionally gone, we just got to put more money in social programs, more money in social programs and racism. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, and, and anybody who or says ban, that. Ban ideas that are racist. Yeah, and bans, yeah. ban offensive <laughs> ideas. And, and, then, um, and then they say all that stuff about, about you know, say, you know, um, kids needing, you know, 
fathers, that's just right-wing propaganda. Well, mm. no, it's not. It's a, <laughs> heteropatriarchy propaganda. Yeah, I think is yeah. The term. It's pretty silly. And so you kind of go, I here's... Think Berkeley Ber- invents more words than any other city on earth. I'm not yeah. sure, but it, it, yeah. so. it invents more words that, are, that, that, that serve to confuse people right. about what they need to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's like a... So, so there's, the, there's the narcissism that sort of imagines that you don't like that 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 what the other side the other guy is saying has no validity that i've got all the truth you know and all of the right ideas and we don't and, you know and the and the overconfidence i'm always struck by just in personal interactions i have people are just really sure of what they're saying because they have been hearing it repeatedly in their filter bubbles mm-hmm. which is frustrating for somebody like me cuz i was um I was really arrogant and confident when I said before the social media came around. And now I'm just like everybody else. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> everybody caught up to you. Right. I know. It was like, hey, when I do it, it's okay. When you're doing it, it's just frustrating. Yeah. All right. Well, it's funny because like liberals are supposed to be on the personality test. They tend to be higher in what's called openness to new experience. Uh-huh. But I've just seen that uh, It seems to be going the other way around. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I... I I've said this a lot to my friend. My friend goes off about the left all the time, but I've said this to him so many times. I don't really believe in it as even a real thing. I think part of the problem is trying to slice up everything into two piles. And, uh, you know, in machine learning, that's a great technique. And that's why, you know, we do it. You know, if you want to classify something, you you keep, uh, you you saw saw, uh, Silicon Valley, so, you know, hot dog, not hot dog, that, Jimmy's uh-huh. character. Yeah, makes. yeah. I mean, like, I feel like that's what everybody wants to do nowadays because at the core of it, that's probably what's going on in the background. You know, it's like somebody's trying to sell something to two people, the easiest way to do it, two groups yeah. of people. You get your hot dogs here, you get your not hot dogs over here, and then you sell that message to them and that. Right. And, and so, every, and, but I just, I'm, when you actually go and talk to somebody in real life, that's not how they experience no. it. Well, though, it's yeah. funny because, like, on Facebook, so Facebook, like, well, I'll put something up. And then people will go, well, he's a Democrat, and so therefore he's terrible. And I'll mm-hmm. go, and I'll reply, you know. Although, um, for California governor, that might not. <laughs> that's yeah. probably one state where that's maybe only a choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but mean, so I'll I, respond, I'll say, well, I'll say, well, why don't you consider my ideas? Because I think you'll find them, I'm not a, you know, a usual Democrat. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, it's funny, and that's what works, is actually when they kind of have to go and read the platform uh-huh. and see how different it is. But if they're actually just flipping through Facebook and somebody goes Democrat or Republican or Trump is right or Trump is wrong, they're just the easiest thing is you're just going to go like and affirm all of these things you already believe. So I think mm-hmm. it's a big a big problem. I think it's also the good I think the good news is that I think it's early days still for social media. Like we're still just, I mean, it's only what, it's 10 years old, right? Yeah. That we've been using social yeah. media. We just got the hot dog app. We need pizza. Yeah. App. We need <laughs> exactly. everything. Yeah. Should refine itself a little bit. Yeah. I, no, I, I have a lot of faith in America doing, you know, working it out and, you know, big part of it, we're both Gen X. I think it's so funny how like when we grew up, everyone was learning how dangerous the internet is and all these strangers. And then, and you know, our parents wouldn't, figure out how to use it and now it's we're and we're all idealists about it. it's like it's gonna be so awesome and we all forgot to not let our parents join the internet <laughs> and it's sort of bad oh, no they're on facebook now it's not quite the same yeah, yeah. that's true <laughs> 
Um, well, thank you very much, Michael, for yeah, being on for, the show. I wish you a lot of luck. Um, thank you. I think I'm going to, you, you sold me, so I think I'm going to awesome. help as much as possible. Thanks, brother. Uh, what can people do who are listening that can follow you, ask you ideas, help out your campaign? Definitely. Yeah, they you? Can, you can certainly sign up to get um, more information at either schellenberger.org or environmentalprogress.org, which are my, is my nonprofit and my political campaign. And uh, yeah, read the, um, read the platform. Um, you know, that's the more important, that's the most important thing. Um, whatever happens in the elections is that we start to create a political agenda that we can get some agreement on because mm-hmm. I think we're not, because we can't, we're not, right now we're not solving the problems that everybody wants to solve. All right. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks.